everyone. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Bible Quest, the Tuesday edition. Uh, I'm your host, Jonathan Sadler, and we'll bring in our panelists here in just a minute. Um, we've got Justin Dobbs with us today. How are you doing today, Justin? I'm doing well, thank God. You doing okay? I'm doing well. Good to see you. And Scott Smelser, how are you today, Scott? I'm also doing fine. Good. All right. Um, so uh, we're going to continue today a little bit with what we were talking about a couple weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, we were talking about kind of some dangers or traps uh, or pitfalls of how not to study the Bible. Uh, and so we want to kind of shift into how to study the Bible and understanding just the structure of the Bible um, and kind of starting really basic and, and building off of that. So, Scott, you want to get us started on that? Yeah. So let me make sure I click the right one here. Yeah, I think this is it. I just shortened it. I want to make sure. Yeah, this is it. Okay. So Justin had suggested that one of the important things is to get kind of a big picture view so you know what you're looking at, which makes sense. Um, if, if you're working on a car, it helps to know something about the car as a whole if you're trying to deal with this, you know, one part right here. And so getting into the Bible, the big picture ultimately is going to lead to redemption in Christ and what he calls us to do. Um, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, and it's for the nation of Israel, and it's from about 1400 B.C. to 400 B.C. in the time of composition, roughly, uh, but it goes all the way back to creation. And then the New Testament is written in Greek, and it's for, for Christians, and it's all written in the first century. That's one reason why the Old Testament is so big. It's many centuries worth of documents compared to the New Testament. And let's just hit a timeline real quick here. In the beginning, God created everything, and people, everything was good, but then there's sin. After sin comes into the world, they're removed from the garden. Now there's sin and death, and eventually it gets so bad he sent the flood. After that, they build the Tower of Babel. They're dispersed. Promises made to Abraham of the land, nation, and blessing to all nations. And then he's got a son, Isaac, and Jacob. His name is changed to Israel. He has the 12 sons, Joseph being the favorite, who gets sold in slavery in Egypt. They end up in bondage down there. Moses is sent to deliver the people, and they go out to Mount Sinai, receive the law, or and then... They build the tabernacle, spend 40 years in the wilderness through their unfaithfulness. Finally, under Joshua, they go in. There's the time of judges, followed by the time of the kings. Saul is rejected. You have David being made king. Promise of his son building a house of God's name, being king forever. This is going to be fulfilled in part in Solomon in a physical sense, who builds a temple. Um, but that'll ultimately be destroyed, and he's not going to be king forever. After this kingdom is divided into Israel and Judah, the prophets come preach to them, and Israel is continually unfaithful. They're taken away by Assyria. Judah is unfaithful, taken away by Babylon, temple destroyed. Going to captivity, they're brought back, uh, and Zerubbabel and Ezra, and uh, uh, Ezra later comes and reestablishes the law. Nehemiah comes back and builds the wall, and they're waiting on the Messiah. And that's the end of the Old Testament. Then you get John the Baptist shows up. I'm the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. And he points to Jesus and says, that's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He teaches. 
He appoints the 12. He does miracles. At the end of his life, he institutes the Lord's Supper. And willingly, he lets himself be taken while the disciples run away. And he is then crucified. Uh, but he's buried. But three days later, the tomb is empty and he is risen from the dead. And 40 days later, he ascends. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descends. Peter and the other apostles announce that Jesus is the Christ and there's miracles to prove it. 3,000 people are baptized into Christ that day. And the church grows a lot, but then starts facing intense persecution. And one of the most intense persecutors is Saul of Tarsus. The Lord appears to him. And he becomes a disciple of Christ and later is, uh, uses the name Paul. And he goes about preaching. And then we have letters from other people uh, as well. And so the Old Testament books, sorry, I'd forgotten that I had that on auto timing. <laughs> I was planning on us having some comments in there, but it was on auto. <laughs> so it just went through. So then we have the Old Testament books. And so one of you guys comment here uh, briefly about just what we have in, in understanding the nature of these different books. Somebody wants to start yeah. with the Torah. Yeah, so the Torah is the first five books. Um, when you open up your Bible, you'll start with Genesis and go all the way through Deuteronomy. Uh, it's referred to as the Torah, the law of Moses, various different things. And so really Genesis and Exodus will primarily deal with kind of the narrative, the, the history leading up to the people of Israel. Uh, and partway into Exodus, around like Exodus 20, God will establish a covenant with Israel in his law, write down the law through Moses, and that'll be where the Ten Commandments are. Um, and so sprinkled in the Torah, you have various different narratives, but also different commandments directly given to God's people. So Leviticus is all about the Levitical law and what the priests are required to do and the sacrificial system that God establishes for Israel. Um, and Numbers and Deuteronomy cover some more of the feasts, some more of the laws, and some more of the kind of story that happens with Israel as they come from Egyptian slavery, like what was on Scott's timeline, until they're eventually brought to the promised land. And that's where Deuteronomy ends, when they get to the edge of the promised land and they're preparing to go in to the promised land. So in addition to noting that I misspelled Deuteronomy, <laughs> um, what are some tips on things to remember when we're reading Torah? Are there any ways in which we should read that or understand that differently than say when we're reading a gospel or an epistle? Yeah, I think one, one of the tools we have to always uh, implement when we're reading anything, and this, this goes to whether it's the Bible or your phone bill, uh, we need to understand like who is being addressed. If I pick up your phone bill, I don't owe any money, you owe money. So if I pick up the Old Testament, uh, who is God talking to? Now, it's true that the Bible's for us. Um, you know, the number of passages in the New Testament that address that. But primarily, Genesis through Deuteronomy is getting the story of Abraham's family straight mm -hmm. so that the Israelites going into the land of promise know who they are and know who God is. So uh, if I read Genesis and I think, okay, this is about God's people, that's one of me one of me, but I'm, I'm one of those. Uh, and then I get into Exodus and Leviticus thinking that the law is something that is demanded of me today. I'm going to start misapplying things. Yeah. Let's give one quick example. Deuteronomy 5. Hear, O Israel. And it says, you shall keep the Sabbath for you were slaves in Egypt. 
and you're to remember that, and I delivered you out. So, and what day was the Sabbath? Saturday. Saturday, and they were not to do what on that day? Not to work. Yeah, yeah. And there's people today that make sure not to work on Saturday, even though they're Gentiles, and what, point, what points are they missing? They weren't of the people that were slaves in Egypt and delivered and that sort of thing, and that's who the Sabbath was made for. Yeah, and like Justin pointed out, this is not their phone bill. This wasn't written to them. <laughs> that's right. All right, uh, talk to us guys about the books of history and maybe how to read them and what benefit is in them. Yeah, so uh, the way our, our Old Testaments, um, I mean, by the way, this is not the, uh, the way that a Jew, uh, maybe of Jesus's day, would have picked up the Bible. Right. Um, the Hebrew Bible, as they would have understood it, they wouldn't call it the Old Testament anyway. It was, it was the Testament. It was the covenant. Um, but the way our modern Bibles are arranged, Joshua through Esther is uh, a collection of books that tell the rest of the history of God's people. So you can kind of look at maybe the Torah as where God's people came from. And then you can look at Joshua through Esther as what happened to God's people. So they've come into the land of promise. And then a lot of bad things happen. You've got where they're conquering the land. Uh, they're obeying God for a time. That generation dies out. And then they start serving other gods. And so they want a king. And the rest of the, that period, that, that section of history is dealing with the consequences of having an earthly king who either obeys God or doesn't obey God. Uh, even up through Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, where they're serving the foreign king, trying to come back into the land and reestablish a kingdom under God's rule. So uh, you're looking at uh, a lot of ups and downs, a lot of major triumphs, but generally the history of the Old Testament, Joshua through Esther, is kind of a story of tragedy, great tragedy where God's people are uh, suffering because they, they sin against God. All right. Then we've got the wisdom literature. Uh, give us some tips on, go ahead, John. Yeah, let, me, let me just say something about history because you asked well, what are some yeah. helpful ways of reading that or, or understanding that. Um, and Justin alluded to this a little bit in the Torah. It does this as well uh, in some of the sections of the Torah, but also some of the sections of the history that the New Testament writers will look back to those and they'll say those were written as an example for us to learn various different principles about God, about how God interacts with his people, about what God's people should be, about what happens to God's people when they're not what they should be and, and various different things like that. Um, and so like, for example, uh, Joshua starts with the people of Israel going in and taking the promised land. It's right on the heels of a story in Numbers where God's people get up to the edge of the promised land. They send in some spies into the promised land and they kind of decide they don't want to go in because it's going to be too difficult, too hard to take. God's not going to be able to give them the promised land because there are giants and mighty men that live there and things like that. And so God sends them into the wilderness as a punishment and they're unable to enter into God's rest into his promise that he had given them. And the Hebrew author will point back to that instance in Hebrews chapter three through four to establish the principle of how God operates with his people. He offers them promises. He offers them rest. And if his promises are met with faith and obedience, God gives rest. But if they're met with disbelief and lack of obedience, then God doesn't give rest. And so the Hebrew author 
kind of uh, encourages the Christians and under the New Testament, under the new covenant of God, that if we have this promise of rest that God has promised us to rest in heaven and rest from our labors in this life, that we need to meet those promises the same way that the people of Israel should have met the promises of God back in the history books. Um, but they failed. And that's the thing that he brought that brings up. The Israelites failed because they didn't believe God and they didn't obey God and their promise was revoked. And so he says, don't you fail too. You need to believe. So reading the history, the way that we should read it is reading it as history, as an actual story, an actual thing that happened, an actual de dealing with mankind that God had, and then realize that was God dealing with them. But that also shows us principles of how God deals with people um, and should change and affect how we approach God and how we live in God. So that's just maybe kind of a quick example yeah. of how to use history books. In fact, there's a verse in 1 Corinthians 10 that after talking about the punishments that happened to them, what does it say there in First Corinthians 10 for us? These things, These were, things were written yeah, for, for our instruction. So that uh, you may not disobey as they did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, there's an old saying, those that don't study history are doomed to repeat it. Uh, the, the history of the Old Testament is there to help us remember, don't do what they did. Very good. Um, all right. Uh, wisdom literature. Uh, Justin, talk to us a little bit about wisdom literature and maybe some tips on how to read wisdom literature. Yeah, uh, so these are often called uh, the five books of wisdom or the five books of poetry uh, and <laughs> how to read them. Uh, the, the, probably the best way to read these books is just to keep reading them. Uh, I've I found that a lot of people um, you can kind of divide people up into, I really like poetry or I just don't get it, man. I don't understand that poetry. And, and even people who like it sometimes don't, don't understand it. But what I've found is that the tools in reading poetry actually help us to read narrative better because there are poetic elements, even in the historical narratives, for example, uh, words that keep getting repeated. So you'll find words, especially like in the Kings and Chronicles, that keep coming back to different ideas. And you'll find an idea, a word, or a kind of character, a real life person, as, as Jonathan mentioned, but that idea of the character in the story keeps getting repeated. One of the repetitions that happens in Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, uh, is a repetition called parallelism. So in a lot of our poetry, not all of our poetry, by the way, but kind of you know, what we think of as poetry is it rhymes. So you have, I don't know, one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or, uh, you know, Sam, I am, I am Sam. I do not like that Sam, I am. That's, you know, Dr. Seuss is what comes to mind. I've got little kids. Um, but you've got words that rhyme, whereas in Hebrew, it's more of the ideas that rhyme. And they may rhyme by uh, comparing two similar ideas or contrasting ideas or even furthering an idea. But the idea is you take two ideas and you put them side by side. And it's not just repetition that's boring. It's meant to help you to think of things in a, a new and helpful way. So in reading the poetry, we've got to remember that the words and the patterns are intentional. And if we don't get it right away, we still wanna see a story because each of the Psalms uh, and even the Proverbs, there's some kind of story element. And if you can capture the story, capture the picture that's being represented, you've done really well. 
And if you can do the parallel ideas, the rhyming ideas, you're doing even better. I'm going to ask a question here, uh, and let's illustrate this. We'll, we'll see this more in detail when we get to New Testament. We start talking about the epistles. Some, some of the values of learning how to study the Bible. Let's just start with that. What are some of the values in learning how to study the Bible? Without going into great detail, just list some of the important values. What are some of the important values of learning to study the Bible and remember what it says? What are the values? Well, particularly with like wisdom literature, learning how to study that and read that, um, you start to get insights into what life really is. Um, and so it's just valuable to understand life yes. from the perspective of the person or the being that made life. Um, yes. It's yes. really what the wisdom literature is, is God, God's handbook on life. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like an owner's manual. So, you know, if, if you don't pay attention to the owner's manual, what do we tend to do in life? Break down. Yeah. And we become destructive to ourselves and to other people. Mm. Pay attention to the owner's manual. What are some other just simple, basic benefits of studying the Bible? We're going to return similar genres first, but I just want some big things here. Yeah. Maybe this is similar, but I, I think it it's uh, it, it builds confidence that we know what we're doing, not just when we study the Bible, that we know what we're doing when we're living life. Uh, so I mean, similar to what we just said, but God's not expecting us just to kind of, you know, trial and error figure things out here or by trial and error figure out what the Bible says. God has a specific message and he's he is a good communicator. So when we know how to apply these kinds of ideas, we're drawing close to a God who loves us, wants to bless us, wants to do us good. But sometimes that blessing is different than what we thought. You know, God's got a purpose and a plan for our lives. And it, it often is very different than what we thought our lives were for. So it helps us to approach life confidently, even when things go badly or differently than we thought. And it allows us to see for ourselves. Because if we don't study the Bible, we tend to go to church and listen to a preacher preach. Is that a very good guarantee that you're going to get a good understanding of the word? There are a lot of, uh, even Jesus said there's a lot of false teachers out there. Uh, yeah. So no. Yeah. You, you, I've compared it to, you know, if you, if your leg turned orange and you went to five different doctors and they gave you five different diseases from, you know, leg cancer to uh, a bad tan yeah 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 or, uh, you're allergic to socks or you know whatever if they all give different answers at the end the one thing you know is that you can't necessarily trust those doctors when you think of the different things that preachers say so by learning to study the bible you can see for yourself what the text says and when you learn a text, then when somebody's misusing it, you, you know that. And you realize, no, that's, he's using that verse out of context. That's not what they said. And it helps you remember where things are. How many times have we or other people wanted, you know, you're in a conversation, your friend's talking to you, and he says, somewhere in the Bible, it says, but I don't know where it says it, but it says this somewhere. How many times have you heard that? over and over and over. By learning these different genres and things, we start being able to narrow down 
where it's from. So I'm going to illustrate here. We got Torah, history, and wisdom literature. Now you can, by study, you can narrow it down tighter and tighter and tighter. So you might remember the very book, the very chapter, and the very verse. But before that, let's just do this. One of you give a favorite verse out of either the Torah, the history, or wisdom literature. And then one of the others of us will isolate it and explain why that would be either Torah, history, or wisdom literature, just by hearing the voice of the verse. So somebody give a verse out of one of those books. I'll read one. This is a, this is a famous one, so you guys should get it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. All right. So, Justin, is that out of the Torah, the history, or the wisdom literature? That is the Torah. Yeah. It's the, the very verse that Jesus quoted when he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And so we come back here, and we've got two books full of commands, Exodus and number Deuteronomy, some of these other ones as well, but especially here. And that particular text is from here in Deuteronomy. So that law of Moses commandment is in the law. Torah means law, right? Somebody give us another uh, verse from Torah history or wisdom literature. About, uh, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Uh, be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways, keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies. Um, and keep going. Uh, all right. So that's not wisdom literature, unless I'm misremembering. I'm thinking this is at the end of, uh, this is going to be in the book of Joshua. And it's a history statement. Am I right, or did I miss that one? You're close, yeah. And it's one of those themes that gets repeated. Um, but uh, here David is talking to his son Solomon in oh. First Kings too. All right, so it's a history, and somebody's about to die, and they're stating this. I failed, right. on, but we got the right category. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but it sounds like it sounds like somebody talking to somebody else, not God talking to a people. So right. it does sound like a different kind of genre, right? Uh, and then how about this one? Like a gold ring in a pig's nose is a beautiful woman without discretion. Yeah, that's it's not Song of Solomon. Yeah. Right, it's not Song of Solomon. Yeah, that's a, <laughs> it's a, a proverb. Yeah, it's going to be in wisdom literature because that's not history. You know, the other quote was a quote that would have been said at the end of uh, the man's life and he's speaking to somebody else. This is just a piece of advice. It's it's not a law. It's not a detail of history. It's, hey, this is a good thing to remember in life. So that when you hear, when you understand the different parts of the Bible, when you hear a verse, you can recognize, oh, that's a law voice. Oh, that's a history voice. Oh, that's a wisdom voice. Go ahead, Justin. And one of the things that's helpful with that is for a long time, I didn't feel like I had a good grasp on where in the story certain parts of the story happened. So for instance, when David fights Goliath, is that before or after Moses? Is that before or after Nehemiah? And so for me to understand the basic flow of the story is super helpful uh, because there are going to be clues in the text itself. And I'll think, oh, that means that so-and-so, no, it doesn't because you've got to remember your story outline. And 
we do we do the same thing when it comes to uh, you know modern movies and entertainment. I'm not a huge Marvel guy, but people get all kinds of you know, what's the proper order to watch the Marvel movies or to watch the Star Wars movies or whatever it is. We know the basic story structure, and that helps us to pinpoint major themes. Well, how much better? I mean, it's kind of silly to talk about Marvel and Star Wars, honestly, in comparison to the Bible. We we need to know the story and know just the general layout. And if you can remember the storyline that you pointed out before, Scott, uh, I think that's going to be super helpful as you read through the histories. So now we've got the major prophets. Now here's here's a concept uh, that I might have. Prophets prophesy. So I might think that all these prophets, major prophets and minor prophecies, every verse is going to be, and behold, in that day, yada, 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 yada. And in that day, yada, 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 yada. And just a book full of predictions. But what's a lot of the prophets? That's really interesting. Um, I'm thinking like specifically like Ezekiel, Daniel, Jeremiah, Jonah. Um, they're mostly largely narrative, um, especially Jonah and da- half of Daniel is narrative. So it tells kind of the, the life of the prophet and the situation that the prophet is living in. Um, the prophets are really interesting because they fit into the history books. Um, the, the, like the, you could look at the order of the books that are here and think, okay, so everything Torah happens at once, everything history happens at once, everything wisdom literature happens at once, but the wisdom literature was written during the history books, a lot of it written during like the first and second Samuel, first and second Kings era. Um, the major minor prophets, a lot of them were in the first and second Kings to Nehemiah um, kind of area of history. So they kind of fall into the history themselves and will include a lot of the history in their prophecies. Okay. So some of the prophets that have narrative is like Isaiah has some narrative in it. Jeremiah has some narrative in it. Like he'll say things like, I decided I'm just going to be quiet. But then he said, the word was what? Shut up in my bones. Like like a a fire. Yeah. I had to say it. Um, Ezekiel, you know, there's some narrative in it. You know, he hears of the destruction of the temple or whatever. Daniel, there's some narrative in it. And Jonah is almost entirely narrative. But there's another thing. Uh, like these prophets over here and a whole lot of Isaiah and Jeremiah and, and Ezekiel, there's something else that they are besides predicting the future, Justin. Yeah, these guys are inspired preachers is, yeah. is largely what they are. They, when we think of a prophet, what we probably should think of is someone who is speaking forth what God tells them to say. That's different than me. God's not speaking to me, inspiring me. My job is to study these things and to bring out of them the truths that are relevant today. So I need to know this book, but they're actually delivering straight from God. So that means that uh, their message, uh, lots of different kinds of messages within the prophets, but primarily two themes keep showing up, which is judgment. You know, here's what you did wrong. Here's why God is so angry and he's going to destroy you. And then two, the, the hope of redemption of salvation, God's mercy. So you've got judgment and mercy. God doesn't want to destroy Uh, He hates sin and he's going to destroy the wicked, but he would so much rather redeem you. And so here's your hope. If you'll just cling to the God who loves you, wants what's good for you, but you've got to treat him like a holy God. So judgment and mercy are kind of the two uh, major themes to the prophets. And that kind of gets us into even some of the New Testament writings 
that's John's message, right? John the Baptist is the axe is like the the root of the trees, but somebody's coming. So you've got this theme of inspired preaching that is judgment and mercy all the way throughout. Jonathan. Yeah, just maybe an example of that, because we haven't been reading a whole lot, but this is kind of a, a little taste of what you'll get in the prophets. I think Ezekiel 33 is really helpful to kind of illustrate that judgment mercy balance. Um, where God in this chapter, God is speaking to Ezekiel and giving him the charge, like it's your responsibility, Ezekiel, to be the watchman, to go and see what's happening and relay that information to my people Israel. And this is what Ezekiel is supposed to say, Ezekiel 33, 10. And you, son of man, say to all of the house of Israel, thus have you said, surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? And so there you have it. Ezekiel has said to Israel, you've transgressed God's law and God's judgment is coming. That's doom and gloom. And you feel like, oh no, what are we going to do? Well, God says, I don't take pleasure in destroying the wicked. Repent. <laughs> and then and then, you, then you'll live, um, kind of thing. So that's a little bit of a flavor of what you get. Yeah, so there's some, there is some foretelling, but a lot of it is telling forth. And there's a structure that most of the minor prophets follow. In fact, if you go through and like just section out parts of verses or whole verses, some of the minor prophets, almost every verse will fall into one of these categories. Declarative, thus says the Lord. You know, or the, the word of the Lord came to me, et cetera, et cetera. History. When Israel was a child, I brought you out of Egypt, reminding mm -hmm. them what he did for them rebellion but you have gone from me judgment you know and and maybe a list of their sins you're doing this you're doing this you're doing this you're doing this judgment you know the babylonians are going to come and destroy you calls to repentance turn O israel and live um and then promises of return and messianic promises and like to the Gentiles. Almost every verse of a lot of the chapters in these prophets, especially in the minor prophets, will fit into one of those sections that we just described. So when you hear that technical language, you're, you're in the prophets. Uh, and like Justin said, they're, they're, they're preaching. Jonathan. Yeah, I was hoping, Scott, that maybe you could do this. I think it was you recently. So if it's not, I'm sorry, it's really on the spot. But I think it was you recently that I heard kind of discuss um, how to understand apocalyptic language, which is also really prevalent in the prophets. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Like what that, what apocalyptic language is, like what the word actually means and how to understand that? Yeah, so apocalyptic language is found, there's a little bit of it in Isaiah, like in Isaiah 13. There's some in Daniel, there's some in Ezekiel, there's some in Matthew 24 in the book of Revelation. The name of the book of Revelation in Greek is apocalypse. And in some foreign countries, you open up to the book of Revelation, it's apocalypse. Calupto is I cover, like in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't take your light and cover it, Calupto. Uh, I cover, Calupto. Apo means away from. So taking the cover away from. Apocalypse. I'm going to remove the cover. And so the, the book of Revelation is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And he starts opening the seals and revealing things. 
Uh, and it's very, let's just, because uh, we're going to get some other things too, throw out some adjectives that describe apocalyptic literature. Very image intensive. Yeah, image intensive. Really extreme Ep types of language. Extreme, Justin? Yes, it's epic. It's just yeah. epic in its proportions. Epic. Yeah, it doesn't understate. You know, it's, it's hyperbolic, big visual. It, it's almost like a nightmare. Um, and, uh, well, like, like King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, you know, or Daniel's dream about these monstrous animals coming up out of the sea. You know, what does that mean? All right. When we get to the New Testament, we've got the four Gospels, which tell about Jesus's ministry, death, and resurrection. And then one of those Gospels is volume one of a two-part work by Luke. And Luke, uh, by the way, Luke wrote 27% of the New Testament. Um, Luke covers from the birth of John the Baptist all the way to the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry, Jesus's ministry, beginning the three years of his ministry, his death, resurrection, and uh, ascension. And then the book of Acts starts with the ascension and gives about the next 32 years of history in the early church. In the book of Acts, in the second half of the book of Acts, who do we see going around planting churches and then going back and dealing with those churches? Saul of Tarsus. Yeah. And after he planted those churches, he often did what? Wrote letters to them. Sometimes he wrote letters to churches he'd never been to. Give a couple examples. Colossi, the book of Colossians. Colossians, Romans. He hadn't been there yet. Lots of times he's writing letters to churches he had been to and he had planted, like... Philippians, Thessalonians, First and Second Thessalonians. First and Second Thessalonians. Um, and uh, um, Corinth, and Corinthians. Galatians, yeah. Uh, on Ephesians, I'm, I'm not going to go into detail on that, um, but there, there's some question as to the original audience of Ephesians. The oldest manuscripts don't have the word Ephesus in there, but um, Colossae, Romans, clearly he hadn't been there. Galatia, uh, Corinth, Philippi, he planted those churches. So he writes letters to a lot of churches. And then he also wrote letters to individuals. And then there's also some other letters. And by the way, what's something different about how the general letters are named as opposed to how the Paul to individual letters are named? The name in these letters here from Paul to an individual, who's the, whose name shows up? person that Paul wrote it to. Yeah, who he wrote it to. But in these letters here, whose name shows up with the exclusion of Hebrews? The person that wrote it. Yeah, the person that wrote it. And then we have the, wow, my, my spelling is terrible. Uh, I've also misspelled apocalypse. Forgot the hell. And we have the book of Revelation. Um, comments, discussions on any of this on tips how to read these. How to read the letters? Yeah. Yeah. Any anywhere you want to start. 
Well, starting with the with the Gospels and, and history, really, um, the Gospels, I think, also kind of fall into the same genre as history. It's the history or the telling, the account of Jesus's life um, and of the, the Gospel, the good news. And so it's helpful to also read those, I think, similarly to how we read the history in the Old Testament. These are real events, real people, real things that happen that reveal how God deals with things and how God wants people to act and how he acts whenever people don't act in that way. Um, and so especially acts will be a lot like that. The, the origins of the church, it's really, really helpful to read and acts to see how God intended the church to be and what God built the church to be and, and the direct kind of revelation in that from the apostles as they're going and spreading the, the gospel and establishing the church. And Paul goes around planting churches. It's good to go to see their examples and, different practices that they were engaged in and how God felt about those. All right. So from the gospels, what are some of the main things that we're going to learn in a practical way from the gospels? Uh, kind of addressing both of your questions here. One of the helpful things I think in, in reading the Bible is um whenever the the writer actually tells you why they're writing and so practically when it comes to the gospels john tells you i'm writing this so that you may believe uh that's in, in john chapter 20 in, in luke luke saying uh he's writing to a particular person so you gotta remember the audience again and he's saying i'm writing these things to give you an orderly account so that you may have confidence about this story uh so you know john's got a different kind of intent uh, perhaps than Luke does. Matthew, when you're reading Matthew, spends a lot of time talking about Old Testament prophecy. It's talking about, you know, this is to fulfill what was foretold. This was written in the scriptures. And so you'll see him really emphasizing the Jewish nature of the Messiah. Uh, Mark's got a different audience altogether. So looking at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're telling you why they're writing, even if they don't like John and Luke do come right out and tell you why they're writing. You can just tell by the content, uh, which is a good thing to keep in mind. Sometimes we don't know the message until you read the message. Uh, and then you kind of figure out, I think this is what they're getting at. And you go back and read it and either confirms or denies your idea and you keep reshaping. I think this is what this book is primarily about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they each book has somewhat its own personality. Uh, for instance, if you're reading a gospel and there's several quotes from the Old Testament on that same page opening. Probably which gospel are you in? Yeah. If you're reading a gospel and as you're reading through, it keeps using the word straightway or immediately and often switching into the historical present. Like when we're telling an exciting story, like, and then I go into the store and then I see this guy and then I do, which book am I reading from? That's Mark. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then if you're reading a gospel and Jesus is often at somebody's house for dinner and, then <laughs> and the underdog is usually going to be the hero of the story, a woman uh, or a Samaritan. Uh, well, actually I'm thinking of Luke here. Yeah. 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 Same, same thing. Uh, oh, and then, yeah, yeah. And then the, uh, when you said a woman or a Samaritan, I was thinking of the, the woman. The Samaritan woman. <laughs> and then if you're reading in a gospel and you're seeing words like witness a lot, light a lot, 
an I am this, I am that. Which gospel are you in? That's John. Yeah. So you start learning kind of the voice uh, in the nature of it. Which is just helpful in developing a fuller picture of Jesus. You get all different kind of sides of Jesus and understanding who he is, which is really the point of all the gospels at their kind of most generic level. And I'd like to get something in here on the epistles, if I can squeeze this in here at the end. So years ago, a friend of mine who had been working full time in the gospel um, decided to step away from that, not from serving Christ, but from that role and take a secular job. Uh, one reason had to do with some uh, uh, family choices. But the other one was at the time he was discouraged because he felt like he couldn't learn the Bible. Um, he, he was a fairly new Christian. Uh, this was in another country. Um, he was very smart, so he could speak multiple languages. Um, but he just felt like he couldn't learn the Bible because when he was studying with other people and translating and such, they would just know you know, where they did, a question would come up and they would know which book, which chapter, which verse dealt with that. And the, another question would come up. They would know, and they would know, and they would know. And he had tried and tried, but he, he couldn't remember it. Well, as I said, I knew he was an intelligent guy. And I, so I asked about, I, I kind of figured how maybe he was studying. And it's the way a lot of people study he had been memorizing select verses uh, and he'd been, it's not that he wasn't studying. He had actually bought a Greek text and was teaching himself Greek and making progress. I, I went and I read some Greek words and he knew what they were. You know, he'd been teaching himself Greek. He was studying hard, but he couldn't remember the texts. So let's illustrate what that might look like. Uh, and perhaps some of our audience have done this. And it's not, a, it's not bad to do this some, but like, okay, what verse do you want to remember to define what faith is? What's the definition of faith? What's the verse? Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. 1. Hebrews 11. 1. And Hebrews 11. 1 says basically, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Yeah, so you memorize that. All right. Um, what verse tells us when to take the Lord's Supper? 1 Corinthians 11. Or sorry, Acts, Acts 20, 20. Verse 7. yeah, Acts 20, verse 7, sorry. How to take it, when to take it, uh, Acts 20, verse 7. Uh, which verse uh, tells us how much God loved the world? John 3.16. And which verse tells us that uh, com compares baptism to Noah's Ark? 2 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3. So it's like... You, you, okay, remember this one, remember this one, remember this one. That's not bad. But that's not the way any of those texts were written. For instance, in an epistle, you're in a conversation that the author is having with those people. And if you take one sentence out of context, have you ever walked into a room and heard people talking and you walked in right in the middle of the conversation and you, you don't know what they're talking about until you listen for a while. Oh, or you open your mouth because you assume what they were talking about. And then everybody looks at you like you got three eyes because 
<laughs> you're on a different topic. So I, 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 I encouraged my friend, I said, how many eggs can you carry without a carton, without something to carry them in? So Jonathan, I'll ask you, how many eggs do you think you could carry without any container? I might be able to get like six, I don't know, seven. I think Justin might be able to beat you on that. I think you can do more than six or seven. Well, if I'm trying to, if I'm trying to, hold, if I'm trying to hold them in my hands, I don't know. It depends. Like, I pull up my shirt maybe more. But. Yeah, elbow fits. Yeah. So, oh but, wow, yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, maybe six or seven in your hand. Then you get this. But at a certain point, say if you get loaded up with twelve, and now you try to add another egg, what's likely going to happen? Drop them off. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so it's like, if I'm trying to remember, oh, 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 that verse, what, what was that? First John three, six, or was it third John six, or was it John chapter 13, verse six? If I don't know anything about the books, it's going to get confusing. So let's try something else. Give a line from the princess bride, either of them. Uh, keep using want- that word. Yeah, <laughs> using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Who are they talking to? Inigo Montoyo talking to Vizzini. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, does Jonathan know that because he memorized the script? You know, in, in that he knows, okay, Princess Bride, scene three, you know, act four, line 17. Did he do that? No, but they just spent some time watching this, the movie way too much. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And you get the story of the movie. And so when you hear, anybody want a peanut? <laughs> Who said that? <laughs> Andre the Giant. Yeah. And, uh, or if you hear, Mowage. <laughs> Who said that? That's the, the the priest guy, right? Yeah, as he's as he's, I think, known in the titles. I think as the impressive clergyman. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So uh, you just, oh, I know who's saying that. It's mm-hmm. encouraged, my friend. And we took a book, and we studied the book. And when you study the book, you start remembering who says it and why. Andy Griffith, you know. Citizens of Rayest. Citizens of Rayest. Who says that and to who? It's Gomer Pyle to Barney Fife. Yeah. And why did he say it? Because Barney. He was uh, crossing the street. But yeah. And then Gomer sees Barney do a U turn. And so, yeah, yeah. So it's like, and it's not because we got the script and memorized it, it's because we noted the story and learned it. So there's a story behind each of the epistles. And when you learn that story, mm-hmm. then when you hear, who bewitched you? You know, if you receive circumcision, your father, who's, who's doing the talk to? Oh. Who's he talking to? Yeah. If you're reading and it says, you know, I, he's talking about how much joy in his, is in his heart and how he remembers how they've had fellowship with him in the gospel from the first day, even till now. Who's talking? Paul Philippi. Yeah. 
And so you can remember, you know, oh, and then and then you'll remember what chapter probably. And if you don't remember the verse number or all the words, that's okay because you should have a Bible nearby. You know, always have a Bible nearby, but learning it by the book. So then my friend and I, we, we went through like first Corinthians and then we would play a game afterwards. And I'd say, I'm going to read something. You tell me if it's Corinthians or not. And I'd read something, not Corinthians, not Corinthians. And then, you know, it is reported there's fornication. Boom. It's like chapter five. Justin, go ahead. I think it's important to, to help us remember uh, why they wrote these letters in the first place. You know, Paul wasn't saying to himself, I sure wish that they had a collection of short, pithy doctrinal statements they could use to debate what the gospel is about and just and then send it off in a letter. He's writing for a particular purpose. And sometimes he'll have two or three purposes, but usually even in a letter that's as long as Romans or First Corinthians, there's a primary reason that has called for him to write this letter. And how do you figure that out? Well, you, you could look at a commentary, you could listen to a, a preacher, don't know if he's right or not, but just re reading it and spending time going through and say, I think Paul keeps mentioning this word again and again. And like I said, using the same kind of techniques you use in reading poetry, we see repetition, we see themes, and just put a picture together and then read it again to figure out, was I right? Was I not right? And you just, you'll keep rediscovering and narrowing down. I think this is what Paul's going for when he's writing to Timothy. And that's really helpful in getting the story together. Robert Turner used to remind us, when you're reading epistle, you're reading somebody else's mail. And he gave the illustration, imagine you're in the attic and you find a trunk and there's a letter there from, say, your grandfather or by now great or great, great grandfather or something. And as you read it, it's maybe, let's say, asking his wife how she's doing, letting her know that his wound is getting better. Uh, but he, he, he hasn't been back on the battlefield yet, uh, asking about the crops and the drought, uh, asking about someone's health. Now, you're reading a letter from, say, your great-great-grandfather or your great-grandfather to your great-grandmother, and what are some things, see, he knows things and she knows things, but if you read it, you can fill in the blanks and realize what? Where is he? He's off at war. Yeah. 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 And probably by our time period, we're talking about probably World War II. And as you read, there might be some clues as to which theater it is. If he says, we took an island last month, he's probably, you know, fighting the Japanese. Um, uh, but, and, and what occupation did the family have back home, does it sound like? Farmers. Yeah, farmers. And, you know, what has happened to him? You know, so it's like you, you by reading it and rereading it, you start seeing the story behind it. So that's really valuable in the epistle. One, one word of caution with that. Um, I think that's exactly what we've got to do. What we may find ourselves doing sometimes is creating a narrative that fits a certain interpretation we want. Yes. And what we've got to be sure that we do is we, we try to recreate the narrative 
that fits everything that Paul's talking about. So for example, when we're reading Paul writing to uh, the church in Corinth about women speaking, uh, we think, well, Corinth probably just had a problem with women being you know, out of order and boisterous. But hold on, you've got to let that fit everything he says in the letter to the church in Corinth, as well as what he said to Timothy. As I mean, We've got to fit all of this together. So we yeah. don't want to create our own little narrative to play into our theology. We've got to let the Bible talk to us, not us, us talk back to God. Roy Rogers' wife would go around and speak at churches. And I heard that she said that she was troubled by that verse until they went and toured Greece. And the, the term guy said what it was, the women sat up in the balconies and sometimes they couldn't hear what was being said. And so they were interrupt calling down below to find out what had been said. And after that, she felt much better about going around and teaching churches. Well, that's a completely fictitious narrative. Uh, the church at Corinth met in the house of Gaius. Gaius probably didn't have balcony rooms. Uh, we know that from Romans 16. Uh, and in 1 Corinthians 14, it said, as in all, all the churches of the saints. That's the one that keeps saying. And then you've got that statement in 1 Corinthians. That's a very good thing. We can't make up a narrative to fit what we want. Right. Just what the text says. Real good point. All right. Well, great. Um, so that's a whole lot of content um, in, in one day. Um, so just to kind of reiterate what our purpose is, I think it's helpful to close with this verse. Um, in, in Acts 17, Paul goes to a new city in Berea. Um, after he leaves Thessalonica, he goes and teaches them the gospel, shares the news about Jesus with them. And it notes this about the, the men uh, who were in Berea in Acts 17.11. These Jews were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And that's really what our point of trying to talk about this today is, just to emphasize, there is a message in the Bible that is vital. And everyone can read it and understand it. And, and we need to take the responsibility on ourselves to read that and understand it. There are some helpful tips and, and strategies and ways of understanding that. Um, and hopefully we've been helpful in talking about that today. But if you, if you need more help or would like more help talking about that, I love reading the Bible with people. Scott loves reading, loves reading the Bible with people. Justin loves reading the Bible with people. We're more than happy to sit down and, you know, get online and, and help you study. So you can reach out to us um, and we'd be happy to answer any more specific questions or go through a book with you and help you kind of learn that process of learning a book. That's, that's our intention with this show to help uncover the Bible, show people the Bible and show people God's word um, so that they can understand. Um, so thanks everyone for uh, tuning in for today. Um, that's all the time that we have for this week. If you're interested in continuing a discussion like this on our show, you can let us know or have more specific questions. Uh, you can visit our website, BibleQuest.tv and drop your questions or your comments in there and, and we'll be happy to get to those in future shows. So um, that's all we have for this week. Thank you everyone. And we'll plan on seeing everyone next Tuesday. Hopefully.